Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Rima Katz. Today we're chatting about a topic that's top of mind for many organizations right now, fraud. Fraud isn't just a term, it's a catalyst for a multitude of sophisticated attack methods that are affecting both customers and financial institutions. In today's episode, we're going to explore why a financial institution's familiarity with diverse fraudulent tactics is paramount. It's the key to not only preparing for potential threats, but also safeguarding against them. Joining me today to delve into this further is Sunil Madhu, CEO and founder of Instant, and Tracy Kitten, Director of Fraud and Security at Javelin Strategy and Research. They're going to go into the specifics of these fraud attacks, shedding light on why FIs need to take them seriously. To start things off, Sunil, what are the different types of fraud that's plaguing financial institutions today? Yeah, they're, you know, fraud is normal and there's a variety of different types of fraud affecting financial institutions. I'll speak about kind of the, the, the types of fraud that are making the biggest impact. So we'll start with the fraud committed by uh, fraudsters who spray and prey stolen and fake IDs across uh, hundreds of financial institutions simultaneously. So th- those are two specific types of fraud. There's uh, synthetic ID fraud. And as the name suggests, it's completely made up IDs. It's called uh, victimless fraud because there's no real person associated behind the ID who's experiencing any kind of financial loss. And this is obviously the easiest kind of fraud to create because you can just generate a made up name, email address, and so on. Online, there are tools that you can use to also generate pretty robust synthetic IDs. So that's a type of fraud that affects everybody. And then there's third party fraud, which is uh, to say people's stolen identities are used uh, to commit the fraud. So this is kind of sometimes mixed up with synthetic IDs in the sense that the fraudster would take a real person's uh, identity and then alter, make small alterations to it. They'll typically alter the email address or phone number of the ID because when that ID is used in onboarding, they know the institution is going to do some out-of-band checks on the identity. So they may send an email to the email address or send a text message with a PIN number to the phone number presented. And the fraudster obviously wants that to come to them and not to the real owner of the ID. So those are two very common types of fraud that affect kind of practically everybody in the financial industry. On top of that, the most difficult type of fraud I'd say uh, that affects everyone is first party fraud. First party fraud refers to fraud committed by everyday ordinary people under the right circumstances, given the opportunity they want to commit the fraud. So they're essentially going to take out a loan or a line of credit or make a payment for something they bought with the intention of never paying that back. And it's a very, the nature of it itself, when you think about it, lends it to be a very tough type of fraud because how can you figure out ahead of time that someone woke up one morning and decided they're going to defraud you? That's a psychographic thing. Obviously, you can look at historical information like the credit records of an individual, which, you know, lenders uh, do that for a reason. And not just to, to make a financial decision on the individual, but to see if there are any kind of negative behaviors of that individual, such as are they applying for too much credit simultaneously because uh, it's called credit stacking a type of fraud where people will apply for you know five five thousand dollar loans from five different lenders and uh, you know choose to exploit that and obviously run away with all the money so the nature of first party fraud and the reason why it's so difficult uh, other than the fact that it's a, it's a real person is that uh, in that bucket of what we call first party fraud commonly known in the industry as credit defaults are people who are genuinely defaulting on the loan because of some economic issue affecting them, such as the loss of a job or, you know, or the economy at large. And they're picking and choosing which bills to pay and they decide to pay, stop paying the loan back. So you have people that took the loan out with the intention of never paying the loan back. And then you got people who took the loan out 
and unfortunately couldn't make all of the payments. You can't put the latter people in the bucket of fraudsters. That would have legal dire consequences for people already in dire circumstances. So the industry as a whole cannot preemptively solve this problem, meaning you can examine, you can cross-reference people's personal information and figure out if the ID is fake or stolen preemptively as the person's signing up. But at that time, uh, when the loan is issued, you can't really say, I'm going to call you, I'm going to mark you as a, as a fraudster because I think you're going to default on the loan. So what the industry does is they make the loan payment after looking at all of the, the historical and financial data of the individual. And then they will basically have to wait some period of time to see if the first payment has been made or any payments have been made uh, before uh, they decide to use collections as a mechanism of figuring out if it's a fraud or economic default. So these are the, the three main types of fraud. And Tracy, you may you may have others as well. You'd love to. Please go ahead. Yeah, no, thanks, Daniil. I just I'd like to kind of jump in where you left off on the first party fraud and just to add another layer of complexity there. And that is, you know, this emergence of what we define as scams, where you have a consumer who is conned or convinced in some way to open up a loan, to transfer funds, to use an account in a way that they have not historically you know, used it. And so this just adds to the complexity, right? Because it's going back to what you're saying, that this is a consumer, a trusted consumer, for whatever reason, you know, something has changed, the habits um, or the use of that account have changed. And I think what makes it very challenging for financial institutions is to know when is this consumer under duress and at what point does an institution step in to take some kind of action? I will say anecdotally that when it comes to scams specifically, it's very challenging for institutions because you're dealing with consumers who, you know, may not realize that they're being scammed. And I can think of, you know, this, the pig butchering scams that we think about, that they're these long-term insidious types of scams that we would think about within the context of a romance scam um, or an investment scam extremely um, hard for the families, very challenging for the victims, and also challenging for the financial institutions. In some cases, I've heard of, of FIs actually dropping customers or clients who have continually fallen victim to these types of things. And it all falls into that first party fraud pool that you were mentioning. I also will echo what you've said about synthetic identity fraud, although it is getting easier because you can be somewhat preemptive, right, to detect um, you know, if a social security number is being affiliated with a different name, as an example. But synthetic identity fraud is one that financial institutions continually, um, you know, struggle to detect. Obviously, stronger authentication and verification at the outset would help some of this. But again, even with the best authentication in place, you know, we know that synthetic identities can slip through the cracks. So completely agree with everything you've said, Sunil. Sunil, why is, you know, first party fraud so difficult for financial institutions to solve? You and Tracy, you know, touched upon this, but what's something that, you know, should be very like top of mind specifically for FIs? Yeah, you know, the, the challenge for FIs generally with first party fraud is the very intrinsic nature of it and that it's a psychographic behavioral change of the individual or some uh financial change or economic circumstance change that may be outside of the, the view of the financial institution. And traditionally, the indicator that's used, the leading indicator for first party fraud is that the very first installment payment uh, from the loan or the you know charge is missed. So the first payment default correlates very strongly to what's called 90 day no pay or 30 day no pay, meaning you wait 30 days after that first payment is missed. There's a high correlation if the first payment is missed that the next payment will be missed as well. And 90 days later, all of the payments have been missed as well. So, you know, there's that's the leading indicator that's used. Obviously, that indicator 
can vary from one type of loan product to the other. So consider a lender, like a payday loan lender uh, that charges on a weekly payment terms, right? So you may miss the first week's payment and therefore now be um, have an indicator that you're most likely a fraudster or you're going to miss the you're going to miss the rest of the payments consider that type of loan versus another type of loan where the payments only due 30 days later now obviously labeling somebody as a fraudster for missing a, a payment in the first week is different from labeling somebody who's missed a payment after a month right these are not equivalent that's part of the, the challenge that there is no common definition when you label somebody a first party fraudster uh, even though the nature of the fraud is they've both taken a loan they both missed a payment so typically the the mechanism used is uh, start collections and in the case of economic defaults most people tend to respond within about 120 days of chasing them and then the nature of the the default can be worked out and a, a newer payment plan put in place and so the economic default can be averted but in the case of true fraud the person's not going to be contactable you know the borrower and so 120 days Later, you mark that person as a fraudster and you take the loss. That's typically the, the you know, thing in the industry. Now, what's complicating this is the shift to demographic. So uh, increasingly in the subprime bucket, that is people with credit scores less than 600, for example, that segment of the market represents the highest loss risk for lenders because there, there isn't a strong enough credit profile for the individual showing that they've taken loans out and made payments on time for long enough. And in that bucket today are all of the credit thin file people, uh, millennials, Generation Z, Generation A. And because the, credit, the traditional credit models are unable to, to accept those individuals for lack of credit history, et cetera, there are alternative credit models that have been developed. Buy Now, Pay Later has seen a, hum, you know, a humongous rise. And one of the biggest consumers of that are millennials. Uh, but quite honestly, that side of the market has not been regulated. So... A lot of these young people are being given predatory loans, which correlate with the default rate, you know, because when the going gets tough and the job markets, you know, cause people to lose their jobs, et cetera, the, the, you see the buy now, pay later markets, the first one experiencing um, defaults, increasing defaults. These are some of the, the challenges in the, in the world of first party fraud. There are some companies that have suggested creating databases uh, and sharing those databases along the consorti a consortium of institutions where they would preemptively mark people as fraudsters based on whatever evaluation they do and put them in those databases. That can be tremendously harmful. Uh, to people because it will act as a dragnet, uh, potentially capturing all of these young people who are, uh, you know, under circum tough circumstances, unable to pay some of their loans, etc. And if that's a consortium that's sharing the database, this opaque database will have the effect of pushing all of these people out of the financial industry and causing financial exclusion at scale. So, you know, we've got to be very careful and not to rush into solutions that propose things like, you know, a consortium block list database to try and solve this problem. You know, we've, um, in, in starting instance, for example, I've taken a different view of this problem in that for us, it's a problem that can be insured and solved. So in essence, uh, we can price the loss risk to first party fraud that businesses hold on their balance sheet. And then we can, uh, in essence, take that loss risk pull that risk across the industry and kind of price the risk and move the risk off the balance sheet so we don't have to worry about creating block lists of people. You know, that's kind of a, a, a new approach we're bringing to the market. Another approach uh, that I see that we're going to tend towards is universal identity. 
and the notion that once you've been accepted in KYC and you've built some good reputation, you're essentially going to get a reusable pass, an identity uh, with a level of assurance of trust associated to it that has uh, digital proof of ownership and that when that pass is presented to someone else, that other person can say, oh, look, I know you are who you say you are. I, I can see that all of this information was previously vetted by a trustworthy entity or an issuer of that pass. I can see the level of risk that you were previously approved for. And so then you have this ability to accept that individual without so much worry as to whether you're going to end up taking fraud losses on that or not. So these are some of the, the kind of forward-looking solutions that are being brought into the market to help address first-party fraud. Tracy, I know I've yapped on here for a bit. Yeah, that's okay, Sunil. Though this is interesting, I hadn't thought about the downside to some of the consortium data sharing, but completely agree with you. And I, I think this really goes back to the heart of a lot of what we've talked about in the industry is some of these inherent biases that are built into some of our legacy systems. And just our thought processes in general. So if I think back to 15 years ago, we would have categorized, you know, the millennial group as perhaps, you know, and wrongfully so as a marginalized group, as this quote unquote unbanked or underbanked group. But we know that these are highly educated. I mean, most of this age group, you know, is in the workforce, they're professionals. They just don't have, you know, that credit backing and they don't have the high income either, right? So again- I would say the difference is that we are all living today in an on-demand economy. So we don't need to buy things as much as we can rent them on demand. And so when right. we rent things, a lot of that data isn't being captured by the credit bureaus. And the credit bureaus have been pivotal in being the underpinning of the industry, providing the data for businesses to evaluate the risk. Right. So the lack of the the, behave, the traditional behavior that we were used to expecting from people in terms of them getting a job and buying things and getting homes, and that's changing with the demographic. And that's really, I think... Uh, what's making the problem worse. Yeah, I would agree with that. And again, just, you know, not even thinking about it from a fraud and security perspective, but just overall wanting to bring, you know, the younger generations into the fold from a financial institution perspective, you want them to be account holders and you really should be catering to them. Um, So it really is kind of a cyclical problem, right? When we think about how we have failed to address it. Yeah. Millennials are, are going to see the largest uh, transfer of wealth in the history of the United States. So, I, and I, th- I don't know whether that statistic is true elsewhere in the world as well. So th- these are really valuable, much sought, sought after customers to upsell things to in the lifetime. But, you know, adding that friction in the path of onboarding them and they're notoriously uh, impatient. They want everything instantly and and sort of putting them through a lot of burden, such as, you know, producing documents to prove who they are or turning up at a retail location, et cetera. These things are just drop off territory for signing up new customers. And so part of the challenge for businesses is that they are losing a lot of potential top line while they're attempting to keep control of fraud. That's That continues to be a, a general challenge in the industry. Yeah, completely agree. You both spoke to, you know, why first-party fraud is so difficult for FIs to solve. But for the FIs that are tuning in and listening and are trying to figure out how they can solve for this, what's something that they should know? What are some best practices that they should be aware of, Sunil? So, obviously... There are some rules and regulations in terms of how people can be lent to. The Fair Credit 
uh, Reporting Act sort of lays out uh, what businesses are allowed to do in terms of the types of information they're allowed to collect and uh, the sources of that information. And then when they're unable to lend on the basis of, for example, bad credit history, there's this notion of adverse action where they have to you know, notify the, uh, the consumer of the reasons why they've been declined the loan uh, based on, on that negative information. So, so kind of there are constraints in the way businesses who lend generally to customers can operate. Obviously, you know, businesses based on kind of historical losses have a level of loss they're willing to take. There's a level of uh, risk they're willing to, to cater to in terms of how they lend. The challenge for them is not so much saying no, because they can say no pretty easily to, to consumers. Uh, the challenge for them is to say yes to the to, to lend to more people. So, you know, one of the ways uh, I've looked at that problem is to say, well, uh, what if we could help businesses insure these uh, losses? So we come up with an underwriting mechanism looking at the, the first party loss rate of a particular business to price the losses using, you know, uh, technology that, that we built end to end so we can control the all the aspects of false positives through the system instead of layering different technologies together, you know, causing accumulated false positive growth. We can therefore say yes to more people than the, the businesses could traditionally do themselves and offer to transfer the risk that they're holding on their balance sheets up to the tune of $100 million a year off through our through our platform, our SaaS platform, and onto the insurance industry, um, which has studied that risk and studied the underwriting algorithms and uh, has agreed to partner with us to create an insurance product and marketplace to transfer that risk. So this is an entirely new kind of solution that has not existed in the market before. Traditionally, every every business has to hold on to their own losses. Uh, this new approach also is strategic for Treasury because in a lot of fin large financial institutions, especially because of Basel III uh, compliance uh, after the 2008 financial market meltdown, a lot of these large financial institutions require to keep capital reserves in Treasury on a risk-weighted basis against their exposure. So there's a lot of working capital that's tied up in these capital reserves. So by providing the ability to insure the risk away, the, the businesses are able to now convert a lot of that capital reserve into working capital, which is a win for the CFO and treasury, the business, right? So so this is a, a game-changing, I mean, in our customers' words, kind of approach to uh, solving the problem. And generally looking forward, uh, I've mentioned another mechanism is this idea, this idea that our KYC verified identity, our fraud de-risked identity will become portable. And banks have been attempting to do, do this for a long time where they share customer information with a view of creating a bank ID that you can then present anywhere and it's a trustworthy ID. So if I were to be approved by bank A and then I go to bank B and try to subscribe to a new product, guess what? I won't have to present my information all over again and go through the whole fraud and KYC checks all over again in silo. The bank can trust this reusable uh, identity. So I know the, the you know markets have been trying to accomplish this for a long time, but they've been impeded for lack of some easy to use technology. And also this question of where does the liability lie if I trust uh, universal identity and I onboard a customer and they commit fraud in my business? Do, do I now go and make a claim against the bank that originally verified that individual and gave that individual the pass? So these, these type of issues have, have kind of prevented a solution uh, like this, this universal portable identity. But in the last year, the W3C standardized two things. Uh, one's called verifiable credentials. It's basically this idea of a reusable digital identity 
which encompasses all of the informa personal information about consumers uh, who have been verified. Um, and it provides uh, cryptographic signatures that show who the issuer and verifier of that information was. It also has cryptographic signatures of the owner of the pass itself. So the pass can be non-repudiated. So if someone steals your pass, they cannot present that pass trying to pretend to be you. And the ownership, the proof of ownership of that pass has been standardized through something, a new protocol called decentralized ID or DID for short. Uh, the simple, simple idea is that when that pass is signed, the public key that was used to sign and encrypt the data in the pass by both the owner of the pass and the issuer of the pass are escrowed through this protocol to a blockchain. Because blockchains are public in its very nature, whenever that pass is presented to someone else and they wish to non-repudiate the owner of that pass and the issuer of that pass, all they have to do is go look at the immutable blockchain using that protocol, retrieve the public key that's there, compare the public key against the keys used to sign the pass, and now you know for sure that the pass is owned by, for example, Tracy, and that's a instant issued Tracy that pass, and all of this information about Tracy was uh, verified, and here's the level to which that verification happened in terms of risk and level of assurance, and here's a KYC expiration timestamp for the KYC envelope after Tracy was last uh, accepted by a business. All of that information is there. Tracy gets to keep that information with her. It's decentralized. The pass is pushed by the technology into Tracy's mobile app or mobile wallet for that business. So Tracy now owns her identity. And Tracy can give consent when Tracy goes to some other bank and, or some other institution and wishes to uh, sign up there to have that pass digitally re-encrypted with just the pieces of information required by the uh, new bank. And the pass is then seamlessly exchanged behind the scenes. Uh, Tracy doesn't have to worry about the technology. It all happens with a simple click or a scan of a QR code. So it's truly frictionless. And the consumer can be onboarded that fast without that friction. So I think I, I already know that these technologies are gaining traction in the market. The federal government, the Department of Homeland Security are, are using verifiable credentials now with a view to develop digital passports in the future for citizens. You know, and lots of the private and public sector are also working on uh, the same interoperable standard-based passes. So the future will be one where we will have one or more digital wallets on our mobile devices that will contain one or more passes issued by one or more brands to varying degrees of level of assurance. And that way, when you come in and you're being onboarded, you don't have to worry about the, the trust aspect tied to the identity. Uh, this new technology binds both the identity and the trust into the single reusable pass. So that will solve uh, this problem of, you know, synthetic ID and third party fraud and so on. I think first party fraud will still remain because of its very, very nature. It's not it's got nothing to do with the identity. It's got to do with the intent of the individual willing to pay the loan or not. Right. So I think that will still exist to some degree. Yes, Anil, I'll just kind of jump in. We can have a whole discussion about decentralized identity and the ubiquity there and, you know, how far off we are to, to a tipping point. But just to kind of tie in with, with what you've said overarchingly, it is a KYC issue, you know, at its core. And we do find a javelin um, that there are quite a few gaps in KYC just across the okay. landscape. And so that's obviously a big hurdle for financial institutions to, to overcome. And again, it goes back to legacy systems and legacy ways of addressing KYC. Yep. But I will 
will say the first party fraud one is one that we will continue to struggle with for the reasons that you and I've talked about, right? Those yep. consumers who are knowingly committing the fraud and then those who are duped or conned in, into committing the fraud. So continually, you know, a challenge for the landscape. But I, I do think that on the first party fraud piece, you know, perhaps we'll figure out some better ways to address um, how customer service representatives, as an example, beyond just the technology could help to pick up on on some yep. of this, right? In the way that they're interacting um, with customers or members. So Absolutely. lots to look forward to. AI might, you know, chat GPT might, you know, <laughs> GPT version 7 or whatever might actually help as well. Um, yes, identify some of these non behaviors. Yeah. Thank you both so much for sharing your insights and perspective. And thanks to everyone for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe and stay updated on the latest Payments Journal episodes. And don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues.